Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Media Podcast. I'm Ollie Mann. On today's show, we discuss the Daily Mail journalist fired for using the C word, Radio 4's rebroadcast of Enoch Powell's Rivers of Blood, and the future for Radar Radio. All that plus what will Five Live do without cricket? And in the media quiz, we play the nomination game. Who's got a nod at the British Podcast Awards? You'll find out in today's Media Podcast. And joining me today is journalist for theweek.co.uk, Rebecca Gilly, and creative director of his own new indie agency, Faraz Osman. Faraz, tell us about the new agency. How exciting. All right. Yeah, we started, we've started again. Um, so we've done a bit of a reboot and uh, Goldwaller exists. Goldwaller. Um, we're calling it Goldwaller. I like yeah. it. There's a, there's, a, there's a story behind it, which I won't bore your listeners with, but I'll tell you about afterwards around my dad's surname. Um, and, and if, uh, if some listeners know what a waller is... Yeah, I know what a waller is. My, well, I know what a chai waller is. M- yeah, my original surname was, was Bundukwala. Not my original surname. My family surname is Bundukwala. If any of you listeners out there know what a Bunduk is in, in Urdu and in Hindi, they can probably work out why I needed to change my name nice. when we came over. Um, so so yeah, now, so now you don't have to tell me the long version off mic. I've got enough. <laughs> I can work it out. I can do my own research at home. Um. Um, but yeah, so Goldwaller exists, so we're, we're up and running. So yeah, if you want some video, come say hi. Okay, so but what, what, does, it, what does own agency actually mean? What are you doing? You so doing... It's, a, it's a production company, essentially. We've actually avoided calling it a TV production company because there's, you know, there's obviously a tradition of TV indies and, and broadcasters, and, and that's kind of was the norm for quite a long time. But but now, actually, a lot of other places want video. I'm sure this week are doing some video stuff. You know, you guys um, uh, and, and brands and other publishers and even individuals are all wanting video now and wanting visual media. So if we call ourselves a TV indie, it's like, it feels like we're only doing TV when we're not actually we're making video for lots of people. So... We're a video agency. And Rebecca, what have you been up to this week? Um, it's been it's been a, a bit of a time of change going on at the moment at the week.co.uk. Has it? Yes. Um, our, Am I about to be well, fired from you your podcast? From, yeah. <laughs> Is this as you I know out? from <laughs> our podcast, The Week Unwrapped, yes. um, our news editor, Holly, has come back from maternity leave. Oh, yeah. Just been a bit of a exciting, exciting reshuffle going on. So I've been doing lots of social stories. So looking for the next viral hit. How's that? It's fun because, you know, we have our brand's a little bit... Um, 
you know, it's... Uh, it's For like old a, people? No, I wasn't going to say oh, that. Oh, okay. It's a trusted, it's a trusted brand. Oh, it's sure, supposed yeah. to have a, a, some kind of gravitas to it. Yeah. So it's like, it's really interesting to do the social side for the website because we can't have anything like, you won't believe what this puppy did next. But, but are you, exactly, but are you conscious that there is a difference between you and BuzzFeed in that sense? I mean, of course, the week online is younger than the week magazine. Yeah. But still, it's, uh, uh, it's, well, it's more upmarket, isn't it? And it's less millennial, I would say. Yeah, exactly. So, so does that mean you can't chase the same viral stories or not? Uh, a lot of the time, yeah, it does, because some of them are just so incredibly lightweight that it just it, we don't want to dilute the brand, but at the same time, sometimes you see them and you're like, oh, that one about, you remember that story about the butcher who was trapped in his freezer, he had to fight his way out with a sausage? That uh, was a really vaguely. tough one for Wasn't us. Wasn't that a while ago? Yeah, it was a while ago. Yeah, that was tough deciding whether to go for that one or not, and we did in the end, and it did really well, but I still feel a bit of a pang of guilt about it. Still feel it. a bit shamed. Yeah, Not when big. the site shutters its doors after diluting its brand to nothingness, I will remember this moment. <laughs> Sounds like a meaty story to me. <laughs> hey! With that kind of pun, everyone will be using your new Goldwaller company. Um, you've been at a dinner hosted by TV Collective as well this week, I understand, for yeah. us. Any gossip there? So, well, I mean, I think... Ian Katz was there, Alex Marm was there. Yeah, and kind of just big up to Simone Pennant, who, who runs TV Collective. I think it's such a massive coup to, to get those guys... Um, around okay, the table. Explain what that is, people. Who so, so, sorry. The TV Collective was was set up by Simone, and, and essentially, it's and it's been going for a while now. I think she's just celebrated her tenth anniversary. Um, and you know, we've been talking about the diversity debate a lot on, on these podcasts, and and you know, things like the Edinburgh TV Festival. But but Simone's been championing it for for a decade now, and it really has been at the forefront of seeing this change, where you get a CEO and a and a chief creative officer making the time, spending a whole evening. I mean, they they got there. At 6.30, they didn't leave till 11. They, they spoke to everybody in the room. They gave everyone the time of day. And, and it was a really kind of positive and engaging experience. And, and I think that the most, in, the most inspiring thing for me was sitting around a table where everybody who just happened to be from an ethnic background were all doing some incredible things. Commissioners, running companies, running global agencies, um, just really knocking it out of the park. And not because of their diversity, simply because they were great people. And it, I think it was just a bit of a calling card to say, hey, we're here, we're doing amazing things, you guys should be working with us. Okay, if you forward. but I asked you if there was any gossip and you just told me that the event was good. Well, I mean, what gossip do you, what gossip do you I want? I don't know. I mean, like, who got with a, who? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> who, got, who got with who? Who's and networked there was, who? There was, I don't think there was any of that that I can think of. There was just, you know what? It was just a really interesting gathering. I think what was interesting is that there were some commissioners there from ITV. There were some commissioners there from uh, from Channel 4 and the BBC. And could you tell from and who they were sidling up to, who they like? I, c- I couldn't possibly say. But what was interesting is, is that it was almost like everyone felt like Channel 4 were taking this seriously and other broadcasters should be present so i wouldn't i think i'd be very surprised if we we don't see other broadcasters hosting the same sort of dinners and almost playing catch-up as a result okay and just sorry to be clear tv collective then is that focused on people from ethnic backgrounds correct all oh, right yeah I it's, it's okay. people from BA, bame background okay. lenny henry is um is a strong advocate of it so his his work that he was you know with his speech for bafta that then kicked off a whole massive debate around that he's he's very much a a good friend of the collective and um and they they just really championing um they they actually are championing a lot around this work around quotas and and not necessarily picking a side but certainly elevating the debate about whether or not we should be having quotas for people from BAME backgrounds and and you know I've got my own views on it but the but the stark reality is that there continues to be underrepresentation 
of people from ethnic backgrounds, as well as people from all diverse backgrounds, particularly in the media industry. And I think when you look at what's happened around conversations around equal pay for women as well, it's really clear that these debates around diversity are starting to gain real traction, not just within the silo of the industry, but outside it as well. And people are really starting to try and infect some change. And Rebecca, I mean, you're not from an ethnic background, but you are a young female online journalist. I Mm. imagine there are actually kind of networking groups and support groups that you could be part of and I'm going to guess now that you're not is that right <laughs> you, you you have guessed correctly yeah why do you I'm think not? it is that very often like a lot of these groups exist but seem not even in the internet age to quite break out of still a kind of clique of people do you know what I mean um I there's a certain especially in the media there's just a sort of there's almost like a sort of chumminess even so it's I think it's hard a lot of times for female journalists to think about themselves as women in the workplace rather than as members of the journalistic clique. Mm. Especially because not so much now, but definitely in the past, from what I've heard from older members of the press, there was a you lot of blurring really of lines between, you know, social and work activities. And there was just this I think there was a really strong culture of we're journalists, this is what we get up to. And I think it's been quite hard for female journalists to break out of that and say, you know what, I'm not I'm not happy with the culture, you know, especially, the, you know, the kind of white collar version of lads culture, I think, was prevalent in a lot of organisations. But mm. that is starting to change now. I do, it's, it's something I think we should look into on this show, actually. We should actually one day just flag up all the various different organisations that are out there. Because, there, you know, there's a lot of students mm. listen to this show. There's a lot of people that want to get into the media and it's yeah, a great way to do it. Women in TV, I mean, obviously from my, my own sector around television and, and film, women in TV and film have done some amazing events and, and they've been at the forefront of, of pushing women to make sure that they get represented. And I think that it's, it's easy to be cynical about this sort of stuff and kind of go, well, you know, it's affirmative action and, and, you know, actually should we be doing this and shouldn't we just let the market decide? The truth of the matter is why this is important is that if you look at the Harvey Weinstein issue, for instance, how a female reports that versus how a male reports that is really important and very different and you need to have that balance. If you look at the documentary that went out this week on Stephen Lawrence, how somebody from an ethnic background compared to somebody that wasn't from an ethnic background produces that program and creates that. You have built-in bias, and having that balance across the industry is really important. Otherwise, you're just going to end up with something that doesn't really tell the full picture. Okay, let's get on to some news, shall we? Because I've got a running order here. We're just having a chat. Uh, Let's talk about Sir Martin Sorrell uh, leaving WPP. Uh, this week and the 200,000 staff under him pondering the future. Uh, He has departed as chief executive of the company he founded. Faraz, what happened here? It's difficult to underestimate how huge this story is. Martin Sorrell is a... Sir Martin Sorrell, sorry, is is such a huge figure that you almost can't extract advertising, PR, media... In, in the UK and, and around the world, away from Martin Sorrell. Um, they, the two are just intrinsically linked. So for him to kind of bow out of that industry really su- suggests a massive shift in, in, in what we're going to see moving forward. There, there are allegations of impropriety that, that have led to an investigation, and my understanding is that that investigation is concluded and nothing was particularly found, but I think that... Well, Ma- we won't know because they're not... They're not going to publish oh, gonna the publish findings. So we'll, yeah, they we'll, said that we'll there was nothing know. to publish or something like that. They, Are we allowed kind of to at least issue. say what the impropriety was? I don't believe it was ever public no, knowledge. No, it was just misconduct. So we don't Mis- know whether it's financial, sexual, anything. We don't know. Um, all I know is that it was misconduct. And, and what type of misconduct it was is, is not for me to say. But, but the, the story around this is the fact that it's Martin Sorrell and he is now no longer in advertising. There is 
noise coming out WPP and and the wider business that this is a thing that will allow for a bit of renewal and and the company was Martin Sorrell and now it means that other executives in that business will be able to kind of start putting their own stamp on what it is that they're doing rather than taking marching orders from him um, which sounds like a positive thing but we'll we'll see what happens Moody's have downgraded their um, their uh, I don't know what you call it their perception Out- outlook. their outlook okay. of of what WPP is from, from something that was stable to something that's a concern, um, which tells you what you need to know about what the market thinks of, of Martin Sorrell. Well, and that's a bit, I mean, okay, yes. It, sorry, it sir Martin Sorrell. I keep saying Martin Sorrell. Sir, <laughs> sorry, sir. sir not Martin on Sorrel. The Apprentice, it's fine. <laughs> I'm going to call him Marty. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, okay, that does show the influence of the man and his achievements, Rebecca, but mm. actually it also shows, doesn't it, kind of how flimsy and based on perception to an extent the advertising market is. Okay, there's hundreds of millions of dollars in it, but... Mm. Um, yeah, in the world we're in now, I mean, let's take this, for example, you could imagine a startup podcast advertising company that, okay, they're not going to do a WPP, um, but they might go, like wire and plastic products did, from being something that's got two or three employees to suddenly owning a real share of the market. Mm. It is possible in advertising still to do that. Yes, I mean, I think the issue here is that advertising obviously is a is a very sensitive industry in that it does not take much for big companies and big brands not to want to be associated with you, especially in the current climate. You know, to reiterate, there has been no, I, there's been no suggestion that Sir Martin Sorrell has been involved in any sexual misconduct. But because of that, you know, the Weinstein aftermath, etc., brands are so sensitive um, about who they work with and who they associate with, and it's so quick to experience that backlash um, that it that it is a very sensitive industry. And I think with WPP, the other thing being, it's just so enormous. I just it there are you know there are very few companies like that that you know they've got their fingers in so many pies and a lot of it was shaped by what Martin Sorrell has been doing for the past 30 years you know he has basically crafted this enormous behemoth company and I think getting someone I mean there's a lot of talk that it's going to be broken down into different parts because you know there's public relations there's the advertising part there's they're involved in health in healthcare stuff as well um, I think finding someone who's going to be able to take on all of that is just, that's going to be an impossible task, I would imagine. Well, and also, whoever it is, almost by definition, is going to be gainfully employed at the moment as the chief executive of another massive organisation, isn't it? So how do you go about doing a search for those people? Yeah, so this is, and this is actually another interesting part of the story, is, is that I, I think for the first time, they're using an outside agency to find who his successor is, which suggests that maybe they don't think that there is a natural successor within the business already, which is interesting in itself because that means that there was no real legacy planning and um uh, or martin sorrell is sir martin sorrell is um uh whatever his plans were for the next iteration that is now literally being put in a trash can and they want to start again by finding someone new so it, it's going to be fascinating to see who ends up taking on that business and where it's where it's going to end up but i think that they are they are going to hit a time of turbulence at least for the next decade um because the, the two things were just intrinsically linked with him and his personality and, and WPP as a company. And it's important to say that WPP is is like Disney. It is absolutely massive. It owns Burson Marsteller. It owns JWT. It owns Mediacom. You know, it is, its tentacles are absolutely everywhere. It's not just a thing that is one company and, and that's it. It's like like you were saying, it's like Rebecca was saying, it's absolutely huge. Okay, let's talk about the Daily Mail. And a journalist for Daily Mail Australia got fired this week after accidentally uh, publishing a description of a reality TV star featuring the C word. Uh, Rebecca's laughing because I imagine, Schadenfreude, you could imagine 
You could imagine this scenario happening to anyone. Oh, 100%. You know, well, what really, happened? Tell us the story. Well, so what happened was an unfortunate Daily Mail Australia journalist was being, you know, forced to write this incredible gushing nonsense about what was going on on a horrible program called Bachelor in Paradise. And in doing so, she was writing in, and the, it was the details that frightened me personally as a journalist of exactly how this happened. It was all very relatable. To hit. Yes, relatable. Yeah. She was writing in Google Docs rather than writing directly because the into Daily the Mail's website. own content system yes. had failed. Yes. Yeah, so she was and using she, her own as, uh, innovation. And and as you do, sometimes you write a little aside to yourself yeah. just to perk yourself up during these times. But then she accidentally uploaded the whole thing up to the website in which she described. Florence Alexandra as can I yes yeah as we've, a, we've flagged it twice now we've yeah. said c word uh, she's described her and other reality stars like her as vapid cunts mm. who only use the programs to flog I think she said to flog tooth whitener on Instagram um this has now caused a huge... Which, which got published on Daily yes, Mail Online and it online for, hours. for hours. And, and to much uh, applause on Twitter as well. Well, everyone People was like, like oh, How Daily refreshing Mail. of the Daily Mail, yeah. to tell the truth. I know. I mean, the reception was overwhelmingly <laughs> positive. Except not from Florence Alexandra, who is now threatening legal action. Right. Uh, and obviously, the unfortunate hack has now been dispensed with... Um, but, the but real, you can't. Well, can you really a legal action for someone calling you a vapid C? I mean, <laughs> you, you have to prove that you're not. I guess. Exactly. <laughs> but also, wouldn't you have to prove that it's not a valid opinion of you? I mean, it's clearly an opinion that accidentally made its way into something that looked like news copy. But it is an opinion. Well, yes, it is an opinion. I don't know if it comes under the fair comment defence, but I mean, it, it's certainly the uh, to me anyway. The interesting thing about this story is that it was, you know, the coverage kind of went a bit into how this was able to happen. And basically the Mail Online editorial process is that journalists upload and publish their own copy unless it is considered a legally contentious topic. And of course, what this shows us with, with Florence Alexandra now threatening legal action is that any unedited and unreviewed journalistic copy can be legally contentious. Yes. Um, and the fact that no one, I mean, obviously you only have to look at the Mail Online's website and how full of typos and, you know, repeated paragraphs it is mm. to realise that no one's looking at it. Mm. But it is a kind of a, you know, it's a really stark illustration of why having absolutely no editorial control whatsoever um, can actually land a lot of publications in hot water. And a poor financial decision, really, for, for the Mail Online, which is a big website and is profitable, isn't it a poor decision for them for us to get rid of all their subs in this way? Because, uh, you know, it, it's a graduate job, frankly, isn't it? You, you know, you get someone who can spell and understands, um, you know, how to make something make sense. Uh, and, well, and I, don't, I don't... Stop uh, this issue. There, there, are, there are a few points to this. I think the first is, yes, you know, editors, sub-editors, online are just as important as sub-editors in print if not so more so important because if you publish something and it's wrong or there's an error in it it gets picked up immediately and gets shared faster than you can take it down which mm. is probably what's happened in this instance it, the what you were saying about how no one's looking at it well actually there are millions of people looking at it because it's the most popular website in the world so mm. not to hire sub-editors and make sure that there is just a proofread of before you get published before you publish anything that is a sense to me that you get a real sense that they are trying to do everything you can to inverted commas find efficiencies and and then these these problems exist as as a result for me and this i don't want to get on my kind of daily mail bashing high horse but oh, hey, why? i come from a muslim family so Go i kind of feel it. like i need to do it every opportunity there there is also a, a question mark about the the mean spiritedness of this and and how you're kind of peeking behind the curtain where journalists are writing these things about people regardless of whatever you think about the individuals that they are writing about they are writing about these people because it gets them hits and mm. it gets them eyeballs and and they can sell advertising next to it and then are also saying 
this sort of language, you know, in in their own private space, but inverted commas a Google Doc. But the reality is that if this is what these journalists think of these people, and then they publish these stories, there is a real sense of mean spiritedness that is clearly intrinsic within these journalists and what they're writing about these people. And I, I think that that raises a bit of a question mark. Yeah, that's true. And you can see that in the reaction on Twitter as well. Yeah. You know, there was the, the reaction from journalists was overwhelmingly one of sympathy for the Daily Mail reporter, which wasn't just for the fact that it was an honest mistake that probably comes from the fact that the Daily Mail, their online journalists are under an incredible workload pressure, but also from the fact that I think a lot of journalists could strongly identify with the feeling mm. of, I can't believe I'm having to write this story yeah. about these vapid seas and that happens in telly as well for us i mean you know i used to work on this morning as a researcher you know everyone who was working on this morning had a university degree but we had to write briefs about what was happening in cory i don't think anyone in the office watched coronation street so you know it's we delivered those stories because right, we knew that's what a, the audience wanted but inside you are thinking oh for fuck's sake i can't write this anymore but you're you're what you're talking about is is taste what you're talking about is saying that like all. Oh, um, I don't like Coronation Street. It's boring to me. I don't understand why so many people people like it. That's fine. I, I think that that's that's an opinion you can. But you can, can still hold. park that and do the item. You can't can still you? park that and do the item. The difference here is that they are making a personal remark about a human being, and whether or not you have you know you like that human being. I'd be very surprised if that reporter actually personally know, knew that human being. So their ability to effectively start their work by name-calling and then write an article off the back of that, which, incidentally, they are profiting, fr- profiting from, to me, just raising some question marks about what the culture of, of those, that newsroom and those reporters and wh- the way they're writing those stories. And the, th- the thing with the Daily Mail is when you read their articles about particular individuals, there is this always this undertone of nastiness and meanness mm. about individuals. This has bubbled over where they've kind of been caught with their pants down showing some vapid seas. But the, but the, the, the fact is, is this is a sub-editor. All a sub-editor would do in this instance is delete those words but mm. keep in the nastiness. And, you know, we need to kind of have a feel about how dirty that is. You know, they called the cyber a shame for a reason. How far do we want to see this go before people kind of go, you know what, this isn't cool anymore? Let's talk about radio, shall we? The lovely refined world of radio and cricket commentary. <laughs> No vapid seas there. Uh, TalkSport has won radio broadcast rights for the international cricket season from Five Live. Now, this is the first time a commercial broadcaster will be commentating on cricket test matches since 2005. Uh, Rebecca, are you very sad to see test match special go? You could, you could tell me at 20 paces as a massive TMS head. No, I, <laughs> um, I'm, not, I'm not a cricket fan at all. I'm not into cricket specifically and at first I you know Braz, not to pitch well, hole, but do you put me on the show because I've got a <laughs> yeah. Pakistani dad and Indian mum so therefore I must have opinion on yeah. test match I literally could not care less about oh, cricket okay. no I like That's sorry three of us, like, then. Okay. I really should be but, frog marched out of here alright well then let's just talk about the, the fact then that a sort of BBC institution has gone to commercialise them I mean, it's the same with Formula One it's isn't it about. it's the same with all these I sports things first looking at the you know there was a huge backlash on Twitter everyone was very upset and you know Jonathan Agnew was tweeting like somebody had died um, and, you know, at first I was like, oh, for goodness sake, you know, what's the difference? A bunch of boring old so-and-sos waffling on about cricket could be anyone. But then when I looked into it more, I started to think, is it, if anything, it reminds me of the Great British Bake Off moving to Channel 4, mm. where it's as if someone said to you, I don't understand what the problem is. Sure, Mel and Sue and Mary Berry won't be there. Mm. And also we're going to ban all the innuendos. You know, I can... 
it's attracted such, and I mean, Test Match Special has attracted such a devoted following. They've got their little in jokes, they've got all their favourite, you know, characters in forms I think it's of even more than that. It's about Britishness, isn't it? It's about the fact that the BBC is the public broadcaster. And cricket just feels like the most kind of British. Well, it's it's like Wimbledon, is it? It's like the episode of W1A when Wimbledon's going to go to ITV. It's like that. It's got it, the thing is, is that cricket commentary, especially on the BBC, but also does bleed into other broadcasters. It's kind of, it's kind of developed its own style of commentary. You know, it's not. I mean, obviously, because of the pace of cricket, it's not exactly frenetic, but it's kind of wry and relaxed, and there's lots of characters that you don't get in, in other sports. So okay. I think that's one of the reasons. Faraz, from Talk Sports' point of view, how do you make sure that the Test Match special audience, when they come to your station, which they will because they want to hear the commentary, whether they like it or not, how do you make sure they feel welcome and yet inject your ads for gambling companies and beer brands? <laughs> Firstly... It's, it's a sport, and the sport doesn't change, so you're going to bring the audience over. So, so that's kind of a, a done deal. The, the, when it comes to the tone and, and how they... They need to balance the fact that they need their own tone. They can't just clone Test Match Special and, and bring it over because it would... I mean, I know that's what happened on, on Bake Off, but you still need to kind of inject your own sensibilities into it um, and, and feel like you, you own it and you haven't just nicked it. What is interesting about this is the amount of coverage that cricket is now going to get and that it seems to be happening across sport you know across the market and obviously where we first saw this was the premier league rights and and sky came in saying we can show the full game on all of it because we can have dedicated football channels and you know when satellite tv first started it was like oh my god that's insane that you can just have tv channels that show four games in one day like you could never do that on bbc one on bbc two that's what match of the day was for Formula One has done the same thing. You know, you have a Formula One TV channel now that has everything on it. The BBC couldn't compete with that. Channel 4 couldn't compete with that. And that's where those rights are going to... But you have to pay to watch it, and you'll now have to listen to ads to listen to the cricket. You have to... Well, the, the, it's still free to air, is, is the first thing about that. And, and I, I think that... And, and, you know, cricket used to be on the BBC, and then it, I think it moved to Channel 5 at one point, but it was still free to air, and that's the argument around it. What's going to be interesting about this is... What's going to happen with things like the Crown Jewels, the Olympics, Wimbledon? You know, when you have a broadcaster come in saying, we'll be a free-to-air channel, which is, when you look at what Discovery and Eurosport did around the Olympics this year, yeah. it's mm. moving in that direction. When you've got somebody kind of going, well, look, you can keep it on the BBC, but people will only get to see or hear, whatever it might be, a small part of what actually is going on, or you can bring it to us and we can commercially fund it, and you can, if you're a fan of something, you can see every ball being thrown, you can hear every catch being made, you just simply can't compete with that. And, and I think the BBC are going to have a bit of a tricky situation kind of going, well, this is public service. Because by being on a public service broadcaster, essentially you're removing a service from people who are massive fans of cricket by not letting them hear every single bit that they want to hear. Could be good for Five Live, though, strangely, in a way, Rebecca, because mm. probably not for their ratings, but for their public service remit, because they're going to have to start reflecting other sports and maybe slightly more niche sports in that airtime. Uh, yeah, exactly. And I mean, for the... the counterpoint of the idea that you know cricket is this lo- lovely british institution and you know this it's been torn away from the bbc its natural home is the fact that cricket is still seen as you know um you know, as a posh sport you know i think even though it's played by a lot of working class people you know, around the country the perception is still very much this you know sort of quiet wry murmuring over you know and blathering on about cakes and stuff you know and it does need a you know, it probably would be good for cricket to have a fresher voice and it would be good for, you know, Radio 5 to reflect a bit more of that 
kind of diversity in presenting and in the sports that it covers as well. And now they won't really have much choice. They'll have to. Well, as they will say on Talk Sports Cricket coverage, more after this. As a listener of the media podcast, you already know that we record in the central London studios at RunVT. What you might not know is that the post-production house studios have been used for shows like Cash in the Attic, Fake Britain and Car Booty. RunVT has 15 offline and two online editing suites, a bass-like grading theatre where it's really dark. I'm in it at the moment. It's like the Adams Family here, but it's also really nice. A dubbing suite and a voiceover booth for all your post-production needs. To edit your next show, go to runvt.tv. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Now. Time for some media news in brief now. Faraz and Rebecca are still with me. And let's talk about the BBC's decision to broadcast Enoch Powell's Rivers of Blood speech. Uh, Faraz, what did you make of that decision? Well, first, it's, it's gone out already, is my understanding. It's gone out, and it wasn't and the original speech. It was read by actor in McDermott, and it, it came with a debate with Amal Rajan yeah. talking about its context. But nonetheless, they did rebroadcast, effectively, the speech in full. I mean, I personally, I've got no problem with it. And not only have I not got no problem with it, I think it's quite a good thing that they did it. There's, we have a massive debate around immigration and um, uh, in, in this country, which has in part led to Brexit and... You know, we're seeing um, mirrors of it with, with what's going on with Donald Trump and, and also kind of the rise of the far right and debates across Europe as well. To, to kind of go, this is part of that history, and I think it is essential for the BBC to be reflecting that history and their programming and, and what they're doing here. I, I, if I'm honest, I was quite surprised with the amount of fuss this kicked up because it's an important speech in history. It might not be a nice speech, and it, people may... But the fact that it's been debated and we still talk about it now... Yeah, I don't know any other speeches given 50 years ago in Birmingham. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's the only one. It's like, it's, yeah. it's, you know, so, so, to have, so people know about it. I know about the Rivers of Blood speech. Have I heard it read out loud? No, I don't think I have. I've, I've read it, but like, I haven't heard it broadcast. Mm. And so to kind of get that experience and, and debate 
what it was like for people, particularly when you've got things like the Windrush situation going mm. on at the moment. Um, you know, I think it's important that the BBC does that and debates but, okay, it because but it's I suppose part of the uh, wider discussion about... I, mean, I think I agree with you, but to approach Thanks. it from a different point of view... Um, people will say, you know, there isn't a debate, there shouldn't be a debate about whether or not that speech was racist. It was. So why hear it again? You wouldn't broadcast one of Adolf Hitler's speeches and say, hmm, what's the historical you, significance But you wouldn't of it? broadcast them because they're in German. People kept saying this, but I'm like, well, no, of course you wouldn't broadcast an Adolf Hitler speech because no one would understand it. Sure, and they went on But if you got Ian hours. McKellen to read it in English, yes. yeah. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I'm on exactly on the same page as that I don't really understand the backlash. Of, who on earth would think that BBC would be like, we've changed our mind about Enoch Powell and we want to mark it by playing his greatest hit. You know, obviously the whole point was so that a bunch of people could then sit around afterwards and somberly yes. discuss how dreadful it was. Yes. But yes, I think there is a reason to broadcast it. And, and as you were saying just now, it's because people don't actually know what it okay, is. Okay, okay. I, I mean, again, I'm tempted to agree with you. I'm just trying, <laughs> oh, to, sorry, trying yes. to represent here the people online who did think this was, you know, something that could cause harm and offence. I mean, is it because it's on Radio 4, nice, cuddly, intelligent Radio 4, that you're okay with it? If it was on BBC One mm. and it was part of Question Time and then the audience afterwards had a debate about it in slightly less refined tones, would you still be okay with it? Because it's still the same idea. I, that is a fascinating idea, isn't it? Because you know, I honestly think that if they did that, they, and then they just opened it to the floor, who's got some comments? How many of them would be, yeah, he had a point? Or yeah, he was right. Well, I some, think we'd. Be, I, some, I think right? that's the that's the more thing. Than, is that more than some. Right. So does that mean that it's not legitimate to play it because it can cause that debate, which is dangerous? Look, we're we're in a we're in a bit of a bubble here. We all work in the media. We believe in in the importance of kind of. I think we all believe in the importance of of discussing things and getting them out there and having a debate about them, and and that is what leads to progress in this country. To pretend things didn't happen and to pretend things that people don't have certain views is for me personally, ridiculous. Mm. The, the, the truth of the matter is, is that this speech was important. It's the same mm. way that you kind of go, well, Nigel Farage has said some racist stuff, so therefore that he shouldn't ever appear on BBC mm. News. It's like, or, Don, or we shouldn't, you know, Donald Trump should not be elected president of the United States of America. He was elected president of the United States of America. I don't believe he should have been from my kind of political views, but the reality is, is that he is entitled to run for that office in the same way that anybody else is, if, if they're qualified. And Enoch Powell was... was had had the right to make that speech and and we have the right to debate it and decide whether or not it's racist and we don't agree with it to hide it and put it in a box is silly okay london-based online station radar radio has suspended broadcasting after allegations of harassment and exploitation of staff um if we get onto the story itself can someone tell me what radar radio is so so radar is a fascinating broadcasting platform that emerged fairly recently and it is a classic traditional radio station it's almost like the, the heyday of pirate radio but pirate radio doesn't exist anymore because you just do it online mm -hmm. and and that's what radar is what it did is it attracted some really f amazing talent um and new voices and new genres of music and it became a real i don't want to say cult classic but it was it was a, an important a station for that community which community well a, a, a new young community that, that are into kind of discovering new music and um you know they've 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 it's an online-only, London-based station for young people. And it prided itself on diversity, a very diverse range okay. of shows and DJs, most of whom have now Fine. walked out. Okay. It's, well, a, no, great, it's a great radio okay, station good. if okay. you want to discover new music. And, right. and so what happened? So my understanding of what happened is that there were some, uh, some DJs that came out and said, oh, I'm being harassed, and, and somebody wrote a blog saying that, you know, this is the culture of what's going on at Radar. Other people started agreeing with that. 
that then ballooned and people said actually yeah this is unacceptable we want to we don't no longer want to broadcast on a station what's interesting about this story and and why it deserves a bit more analysis is that it's it's what's transpired and i wasn't aware of this i used to listen to radar and, and i wasn't aware of this until this story broke is that the guy who started up radar radio and who owns radar radio is the son of i forget his name but the son of mike ashley son of mike sports ashley direct. who used to run sports direct mm. so his mike ashley is a multi-billionaire was famously in the news recently for working practices zero hour contracts was bought in front of parliament to kind of explain how he puts his working practices together his son and i'm not saying they're the same person but it's an int- makes this part of an interesting story his son was started up radar radio it created a massive wave and um did some really positive things for representing new music new voices there was then some allegations around um uh misconduct and impropriety my understanding is that his son then got the same hr company that was involved in the scandal around sports direct to deal with this issue um and people then kind of were up in arms saying this is ridiculous how is this how is this happening and how is this going on and as a result people have just gone what's what's the great thing about this story is 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 that a lot of people have kind of gone i just don't want to be involved in this i don't want to stand up from it and they've walked away and the power of those young people and mm. those voices to kind of go you know what i'm just not interested walk away has meant that the, the station has stopped broadcasting so almost is, immediately is the brand now toxic or is there a possibility for it um i don't think under the current I don't think under the current management, there's uh, anyway, this is going to be resolved. No, but that wasn't the question. The question is, has it become Kevin Spacey? Is it like untouchable now? Um, I think that those, I think the DJ, it's like the DJ collectives and the DJs are going to have to go somewhere else and find a new home because they've now made this grandiose stand. But it just pierces through the hypocrisy of the idea that this was promoted as this young, cool, diverse, you know, open-minded platform for, you know, experimental music, new faces, new DJs. Which Run by the same rich, but... Behind it, still same wealthy white males. And this is what some of the DJs who have walked out have talked about because there's been, you know, the complaints ranged from, you know, direct examples of outright harassment to just there were more vaguer ones, you know, and the word tokenism was thrown around as well, uh, you know, as then they've put out this front of diversity, but behind it, it's the same same old people pulling the strings. But it's pretty hard to start a radio station, isn't it? That's, uh, which that's I going to be paying that. people. Yeah, and it's mm. it's like it's like BBC One Extra, right? You know, it, the BBC One One Extra was started in kind of even now. It's you know, it's run by Tony Hall. And, and, and you clarify, you mean Radio One Extra? So Radio BBC Radio, One Extra, BBC Radio, special BBC extended radio edition of the One, one Show. Extra. <laughs> 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 BBC Radio One Extra, which is I, I don't know if they still call it an urban music. Um, radio station um, but but that was started in, in almost the same guise and it's like you know you've got people that are old white men at the top of the BBC and then they're kind of representing really but One Extra has, has done some really interesting things and has, has kind of discovered and broken some really great new talent you look at someone like Dot, who's now on primetime BBC One you know, would that face ever appeared on BBC One if it wasn't for something like One Extra? So you're absolutely correct. It's in that there are certain powers at play that mean that these stations exist and they are created. And what Radar was doing was absolutely brilliant. And it did break a lot of new voices and new faces, new music, which is already positive. But you then do have a layer of responsibility to make sure that you see that through and everyone is treated in the right way and done properly. And I don't, I don't think it matters if you're from a rich, wealthy white background. That's just common decency and you should be able to do that. Sticking with radio and Key 103 Manchester is getting a rebrand as Hits Radio Manchester, a local version of the national radio station Hits Radio. Uh, owned by Bauer, but then so is Key 103. So does this make sense, just sort of aligning all their stations together, do you think? Or actually, is this a bit depressing for the people of Manchester to lose a legacy brand? 
So I was going to say something slightly earlier when we were talking about cricket, about discovery. And, and discovery is a kind of key part with all of these broadcasting brands in particular. You know, if I wanted to... Hit, if something interesting was happening in the cricket and I saw on Twitter something was interesting happening in the cricket, I would still turn on Radio 5 Live because that's where I assume that that game was going to be broadcast. And if it's then on Talk Sport, it's going to, my discovery is going to be tricky. But as people move around the country, people go to university, people, you know, just are in their cars travelling around... Here, seeing that there's a kiss in London and a kiss in Birmingham and a kiss in Manchester, or in this case, a hits radio in, in lots of different cities, gives you that level of familiarity that means that you'll stop on the station, like the EPG on Sky or any you know broadcast network. It just means that you have that familiarity and you can engage with that station. <sighs> but there's still something... That, I mean, I don't know what you think about this, Rebecca. I was in yeah. Liverpool last week and they've got that huge uh, radio city tower they have as you drive into Liverpool. Uh, as soon as I saw it, I was like, well, that's cool. They still have a local radio station for Liverpool. I am going to listen to that station. Interestingly, there weren't many Scousers on it, but it still sounded like Liverpool in that it was playing a huge variety of music. It was kind of sentimental and warm and funny in that kind of Liverpool way that was slightly distinct from what yeah. you'd hear on a national platform. I like that, yes, but I is like it the it end too. of that? <laughs> I feel like we're moving towards a time when local radio is just going to mean this, the same syndicated broadcast, but with local firms having paid to put their mini cab ads in it. You know, and it, it, it would be really sad. But fundamentally, the Bauer is facing the same problem as other you know, radio networks in that they've got to try and do more with less. And, one way, you know, that, and that is one way of doing it, is taking these local stations and making them into, you know... N- basically into a national brand Franchise and just inserting those local localised ads. But it's all a bit, I don't know, Bauer's having a bit of, it's been trying to figure out what to do with, basically with everything because it has obviously the local radio interest and then it's got your Kiss and your Magic and Absolute, etc., which are national now. And so they've been trying to figure out how to best combine those brands. And it seemed initially, a few years ago, they were going to rebrand so that, so basically, so that the, their national offerings would be rebranded locally. So Magic would be, yeah, Magic Bristol, etc., or Bristol Two. I think they was their idea. They were going to make it like a second channel. And now they seem to have gone back on that, and they're taking this local institution, Key One Hundred and Three, and turning it into. I mean, you couldn't think of a blander name, could you, than Hits? <laughs> you know like, what you're getting. Oh, you, you absolutely you know, what, know you're what you're getting. That's true. Yeah. Um, it's just a bit. I mean, it's just it's just emblematic of the a general blandening, isn't it? Right, there is just time for our media quiz. This week, it's the nominations game. Who is in the running for a British podcast award? When you know the answer, you buzz in with your name. So, Rebecca, you will say... Rebecca. And Faraz, you will say... Faraz. Here's question number one. Name one of the nominees for the Represent Award, which gives voice to people unheard in other media. Faraz. Yes, Faraz. And Melanin Millennials. No, Melanin Millennials is not in amongst the nominees. The nominees are Carousel Radio, I Hear Voices, Mostly Lit, Stance Podcast, and The Backstory. Here is question number two. Name one of the nominees for Best Entertainment Podcast, covering music and magazine shows and storytelling in any format. Rebecca. Rebecca. The horn section? No. <sighs> <laughs> um, but interesting... So it just shows how many great podcasts are out there. It, yeah. it, uh, yes, uh, either that or that the judges had some odd choices. Um, the uh, Griefcast is in nominees for Best Entertainment Podcast, which I keep hearing about. Carrie Ad Lloyd's show about um, basically talking to people who have experienced bereavement. Interesting thing to be in the entertainment <laughs> section, exactly. Well, I get a lot of the guests are comedians and things. Right. Uh, so anyway, the nominees are Griefcast, Nothing to Declare, Probably True, The Butterfly Effect, and the It's Nice That podcast. Uh, and uh, I'd call it the tie break, but uh, so far, no points. 
named two of the nominees for Best New Podcast. Rebecca. Rebecca. Uh, Adrift and Reasons to be Cheerful. Very good. Can I just say, and full disclosure... (laughs) I was one of the judges on on that shortlist, so oh, you we would have got so, that. So you know, I want to share that kudos because you know. Fine, <laughs> okay. I think Rebecca still won, uh, but yes, I chose them. Uh, in the interest of impartiality, the full list of nominees for best new podcast, the Jeff Lloyd Award, are Radio Atlas, uh, the Tip Off. Uh, my first time, and indeed Jeff Lloyd's two new podcasts, Adrift with Jeff Lloyd and Annabelle Port, uh, and Reasons to be Cheerful. Oh, I know who with Ed Miliband. Do you? <laughs> yeah, I was judging it. So okay, oh, well, I'm going to ask you later yeah. whether Jeff Lloyd split the vote. I wouldn't do that to our <laughs> listeners. They're going to be on the edge of their seat waiting for the big night. Uh, so anyway, Rebecca, congratulations. Uh, Faraz, congratulations on your weird new company. And that is it for our weird. show. It's just it's, it's an intriguing it name. It's an intriguing name. It's an intriguing, intriguing new company. New I'll take company, that. I think. Uh, if you like what we're up to here on the Media Podcast, then consider taking out a voluntary subscription. Uh, head to themediapodcast.com slash donate and select an amount to keep us going all year round. Uh, And remember, you can catch up with previous episodes and get new ones as soon as they're released by subscribing for free on our website, themediapodcast.com. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer, Rebecca Grisdale-Sherry. The Media Podcast is a PPM production, and until next time, bye-bye.